Good day. Um, this is Brian Young. I'm uh, the senior managing editor with Informa Pharma Intelligence uh, based in Beijing. Uh, is uh, James Xue. He is the CEO, chairman, and the founder of Cambridge, a biopharma company based in Beijing and Boston, which is focused in rare disease development in China. Today is the, also the first episode of our CEO podcast series. Without further ado, let me introduce James to you. James has been with uh, Cambridge, the company who started 10 years ago in 2012. Before starting this company, he was the executive at the real disease company, Jinzai, who is now part of Sanofi. James has been with the real disease development for many decades. And he has brought his full score and decades experience to this space. Before diving into questions, I'd also like James to briefly introduce himself to you. James, could you please share some words about your background to us? Thank you, Brian, and good morning, good evening, no matter where you are. Um, thank you, and it's an honor to be invited by Informa, Brian, yourself um, as a guest to the you know very first uh, episode of uh, the uh, the CEO podcast. Um, uh, certainly, I wish a very successful series going forward. Um, yes, my name is James Xue, founder, CEO, and chairman of Cambridge Pharmaceuticals. Uh, I have been actually in the biotech industry for almost 25 years. Um, and my background um, have come across from research development to uh, commercialization um, to business management. Um, I have spent about past 20 years focusing on rare disease with both Genzyme and, and Cambridge. Uh, I was also the uh, founding general manager of a Genzyme in China uh, to be the first uh, business person uh, introduced the rare disease concept, business model, and the first rare disease treatment, Sarazand for Gaucher disease to China. I'm also uh, responsible for, uh, you know, contributing to a, building an ecosystem that would support a rare disease cause in China namely uh, the uh, China Alliance for Rare Disease that established in 2018 that played a role in uh, helping the uh, organization uh, getting started. Um, also, uh, I'm currently serving on the management team of that entity as the Deputy Director General. Um, it's certainly, uh, I'm dividing my time between China and the U.S. You know, as Cambridge is really uh, growing to be a, a global company with operating base, as Brian mentioned, uh, in both uh, China, that we have hubs in Beijing and Shanghai, and is currently building our 
headquarters in Suzhou, a comprehensive uh, uh, development and manufacturing center that you know to be uh, built in China. We're also um, opening our uh, U.S. head office and R&D center in the Boston area that we're soon going to announce to share the good news you know, with you and with others. And this is just uh, my background. Thank you. Thank you, James. Really uh, uh, impressive. Uh, we are, again, fortunate to have you um, to, to be the first guest uh, on our CEO podcast series. Uh, my first question would be, since you are, uh, you mentioned that you are dividing time between the U.S. and China, uh, Boston and, uh, um, and Beijing, and also building a Suzhou headquarters. Uh, it sounds very exciting news and exciting time for Cambridge. Um, so uh, without uh, further, we always uh, know that there's a lockdown, uh, widespread lockdown in China, Shanghai, Suzhou is not uh, too far from Shanghai. Um, how that has impacted you, uh, operations or R&D clinical trials? Uh, can you briefly tell me, tell us about that? Well, first, I really want to uh, say that, uh, you know, our best wishes um, with the people of Shanghai um, who are still under a very difficult uh, circumstance. We truly wish that, uh, you know, this lockdown will be over soon and people can return to their normal lives. Um, Cambridge actually has a you know, significant number of employees and also our partners uh, based in the Shanghai in the Yangtze River Delta area. And certainly, uh, you know, every party, including our own team and our partners team, uh, have been doing our best to minimize the uh, the business disruptions, in particular uh, with the product supply that to the very patients that we serve, that, uh, you know, whether it is on the commercial uh, operations or on the uh, clinical trial operations, we want to make sure that, you know, those uh, supply of drugs um, to patients and not interrupted you know, to our best ability. I'm glad that actually as a result, you know, we haven't seen any major uh, disruption so far yet, get fingers crossed. On the other hand, um, since we have uh, clinical trials all over the you know, country uh, in China, um, so um, if one place um, you know, happened to you know, get a temporary shutdown or you know, interruptions, that we would actually be able to use the other sites to compensate. So, uh, you know, I think to date um, we are okay. We're doing okay. Okay. Uh, just uh, uh, quickly a follow up. Uh, would you say this going to be uh, further impact coming down, or would you say it will be quick? Uh, over and you come back to normal for your both clinical or commercial yeah. operations. Well, we, we, you know, this is not actually the first time. You know, we also have uh, extensive commercial operations in Taiwan and in Hong Kong. You know, you know, where actually this kind of uh, episode already occurred before Shanghai. You know, other part of China as well. So we, you know, this is part of this very uh, extended. Uh, duration of uh, since the pandemic started, you know, two and a half years ago. Um, in you know, we actually in, during the whole two and a half years, you know, Cambridge actually you know move forward pretty uh, um, 
progressively, um, you know, including uh, we actually launched our uh, public listing in Hong Kong Exchange December last year. Um, so all this actually happened in the backdrop of the pandemic. We have already learned how to manage this and how to actually um, mitigate the risk, you know, how to uh, really, uh, you know, energize ourselves or organize ourselves to allow our uh, continuous operations. So I, I would expect the same for Shanghai and the Yangtze River area as well. Okay, um, just quickly, how important is this uh, to you uh, for that area? Uh, you talk about Yangtze River, including Shanghai, uh, Zhejiang, Jiangsu, uh, surrounding areas. How, how How is that important to you, both uh, clinically or commercially? Well, actually, uh, most of our uh, operations team actually are based in Shanghai in that area, um, whether it's commercial and clinical operations. Uh, certainly our employees are directly impacted because many of them actually have been under lockdown. But what concerns us, of course, is also that a lot of physical operations like say manufacturing facilities um, and then the central labs, um, in addition to those hospitals that already shut down, uh, we don't have that many hospitals actually based in Shanghai. You know, this was the fortunate part um, as our clinical trial sites. But, uh, you know, our partners have the labs and have laboratories and have the manufacturing facilities there. You know, those are also tied to the supply chains that, you know, reagents, um, you know, raw materials, you know, the, you know, the products, etc. Um, I think the, all this actually we have to under close watch uh, for a much extended period, uh, it will certainly cause certain disruptions. We hope that this actually can be managed to the extent that, that uh, you know, at some foreseeable future, we actually can return to a normalcy. Great. Um, let, let's turn to uh, another topic very keen to you, uh, which uh, you mentioned just now that uh, in December last year, uh, Cambridge went on the main Hong Kong uh, stock exchange, uh, become a public company. Um, from your point of view, uh, I know there are a lot of discussions about the the investment flow to biotech sector um, uh, since the pandemic, particularly in the year 2021, has been uh, tough. What have you observed um, in terms of investment flow to China biotech sector uh, in the 2021? That's a very good question, Brian. Uh, actually, 2021, we actually observe, uh, I would say, the very two different world. The first half actually was still a pretty uh, excited, and um, everything goes onward and forward. Um, but the second half was really tough. You know, tides start to change. You know, after July, uh, you know, the tech sector was heavily hit uh, with you know DD and uh, you know the end group Alibaba, etc., and then the education sector. Certainly, that actually caused a lot of panic to uh, to investors, in particular Western investors who have a, a bigger footprint in China. Uh, and then some of those actually are, uh, you know, specialty investors that also have a major portfolio in the uh, life science sector. Um, so we are in the life science sector. So those investors actually become much more cautious um, as a result in the second half of 2021. 
And we also see that in amongst the, you know, the China, Chinese investors, or in particular the mainland China and Hong Kong based investors, um, you know, those um, what we call the generalist um, already withdraw from the market in the second half um, because really, you know, you know, they actually did not equip with the knowledge and the know-how that kind of the appetite, you know, for a high risk area like biotech. So, you know, with the withdrawal from the generalist, the, the size of the money supply would be much smaller. And also many of the specialists from the West also played a very cautious um, game. And that actually made, um, you know, the IPO launch uh, much more challenging just in a few months uh, into the second half. Uh, nevertheless, you know, we were able to um, launch our IPO in December uh, you know, mostly thanks to our uh, existing uh, institution investors who continue to support us, uh, and also a significant amount of those come from specialty biotech uh, institution investors uh, based in the U.S., based uh, in the you know the Western Hemisphere, and those are the investors that certainly see Cambridge as a great opportunity for them, you know, to have ownership or expand their ownership to capture the upside uh, of both the China real disease market and also Cambridge potential as a global player. We're glad that uh, we become the first uh, publicly listed real disease featured company in China. I think also probably true in Asia as well. Great. Um, if I can just uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, dive into some uh, what you have uh, mentioned, uh, I assume mentioned that the, of course, the their uh, listing options out there, and when you considered, um, for example, Shanghai, Starboard, Hong Kong, and the Nasdaq, um, uh, and your decision to go to Hong Kong, um, uh, particularly in this uh, second half, you mentioned it's challenging time. Um, what uh, of what have you uh, prompted you to make this decisions, uh, decision to go to Hong Kong and what's your reflection about uh, going to Hong Kong and uh, uh, any takeaway or any something you would uh, want to, to draw from this uh, IPO experience so far? There's another good question. It's never an easy decision, you know, um, in terms of where you want to first launch your IPO. Um, you know, Hong Kong Exchange Chapter 18 in particular is a very new thing. It only exists for about three years. But we, what we have seen is actually, you know, you know, a majority of the most promising, you know, China-based or China-featured biotech companies actually chose Hong Kong to be their place to debut their, you know, public listing. Uh, and a number of them already either executed or planned for a secondary listing in Shanghai or in other places. Uh, even for the Nasdaq listed, uh, you know, top China featured biopharma companies, they also come to Hong Kong. There has to be a reason why Hong Kong is an attractive place. I concluded several. One is, you know, I think Hong Kong, um, you know, its stock market is actually representing the expectation, not for the Hong Kong island or the special administrative region, is actually for the entire greater China. I would say that's if your business, if our business have a large footprint in Greater China, 
we better to make our uh, you know, presence in Hong Kong exchange. And secondly, Hong Kong is also a very unique place that actually it attracts investment um, and talents from, you know, the best of both world, you know, the uh, Asia and also the Western world. So in that regard, is there, you know, a resonance with company uh, like Cambridge? You know, we actually also draw the best, you know, from both worlds in terms of talents, in terms of our capabilities, technology operations and the market potential. So that actually make it a perfect uh, candidate for us to launch our uh, debut to our IPO in, in this market. And in terms of the lessons learned or some takeaways, I would say still, as I said, um, you know, the uh, this class is always half full, right? Uh, Hong Kong uh, chapter 18 is very young. And then the uh, uh, biotech presence in Hong Kong exchange is very kind of a recent phenomenon. So Hong Kong needs time to mature its market, to develop a know-how in particular, uh, the specialist investors and also those analysts who are able to um, analyze companies, critique companies, and 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 then um, examine the companies, um, you know, by building their own uh, rapport and uh, uh, track record and you know in-depth knowledge and experience. So this act will take time, um, but we definitely will, will be very happy, more than happy to uh, you know, work with our stakeholders in the Hong Kong exchange or investors you know, to make this happen sooner. Uh, just uh, quickly, do you have any plan to go NASDAQ or Shanghai? Well, I, I cannot uh, you know, say this in any kind of publicly, um, but you know, as a CEO of a company, one of the you know, major concerns is the continuity, the financial uh, vi viability, right? And and therefore, um, you know, exploring all the options, including um, you know, all means and all the uh, you know platforms for issuing or stocks um, to to gain capitals uh, would be making sense. I think that uh, very natural for us to think about. Yeah. So you don't rule out Shanghai in the near future. We, we don't rule out any possibility that allow Cambridge to uh, grow, um, uh, you know, expand our leadership in the rare disease space, in particular with our emphasis on China and the emerging markets, and also with our emphasis on truly become a global company. Agreed. Um, one last on this topic, um, because the Cambridge is really unique. It is the first com public company are uh, devoted to rare diseases. Uh, in Asia, uh, it's uh, something quite uh, significant. Um, how have you seen this? Uh, the investors, as you mentioned, the specialists and the generalists, how do they receive this? Uh, the first company, rare diseases. Uh, not not only I'm, I'm not talking about uh, from Hong Kong's perspective, but uh, from uh, Greater China. If you ever go into Shanghai style market, not to Nasdaq, how, how, how do you position yourself to really get the full value? Yeah, well, we, we never know when, you know, before that happens, right? But, you know, I will tell you that, you know, during our pre-IPO um, um, preparations, including um, your crossover round, and then the, uh, you know, the, the road shows that we have done, I think over a hundred roadshows 
um, many of those actually uh, participants were uh, mainland-based institutional investors. Um, even though uh, most of them uh, did not participate in our IPO, but I would say almost everybody you know, showed us their enthusiasm uh, about Cambridge's future and then the future of the China real disease market. And then in particular, as they told us, quote unquote, they're tired of looking at the oncology feature companies one after another, they all look like the same. And then they see that uh, Cambridge is a you know, breath of the fresh air, certainly opened up a different domain for them. I'm hoping that as China continues to expand and the warming up toward the rare disease market, like in the March, the National People's Congress, Premier Li Keqiang in his official government report put down the line saying, um, emphasizing on the uh, research and treatment supply, therapy supply of rare disease will be a major task for the government for this year. It highlights uh, that now all the stakeholders in China, including the most senior leadership, see rare disease you know, as a must win area for the Chinese society. Uh, we're very encouraged that we are doing the right thing in the right place at the right time. Good. Um, let, let's uh, switch to another topic. As you mentioned that uh, you are actually splitting time between the US and China. In the past, it would be so much easier just a flight away, flight, flight uh, a distance. Uh, but now it's, uh, we have a de decoupling ongoing or it's, it's been there. Um, so how this US-China decoupling has impacted you, uh, both deal making and cross-border uh, uh, the, the, the funding, financing, and also clinical commercial operation? Well, I, I would say that uh, to, to date, we actually have experienced minimal uh, impact in this area. Certainly we have heard you know, some kind of a discouraging news, such as the delisting, you know, a list of, uh, you know, NASDAQ listed companies that have route to China. Um, but, you know, in terms of business deals, um, you know, propositions from uh, all sides has flooded us. Uh, with, we have a very robust inflow of uh, business opportunities from uh, Western companies, in particular uh, US-based companies. Uh, we have definitely entertained a lot of enthusiasm uh, from uh, US-based institutional investors. Actually, uh, we are actually planning a trip to uh, uh, New York City next week, uh, where we're going to have a high number of meetings with many of them. Um, and I think that the real impact is actually travel, right? Um, mm. As you said, I used to travel between China and US at a moment's notice. I don't need to really plan. I just hop onto the flight and 12 hours later, 14 hours later, I started working on the other side. Now it's impossible. So for the past two years, I only flew twice between China and the US. And I have to decide how much time each time I arrived at one place to stay there to make the travel, you know, to, to trip the stay worthwhile, right? Because the travel itself coupled with those quarantine, the lengthy quarantine is uh, at least a month. It's almost like, you know, back in the good old days, shipping. You know, at least a month. 
So therefore, I better plan the time well. And also, we actually have a, a you know, natural born advantage is or both on the China side and the US side or, or operating teams and management teams are pretty autonomous. You know, they really would need minimum supervision uh, without me being physically next to them that actually can carry on, you know, for days and weeks and months. Um, so I'm pretty confident that in this kind of a new era kind of arrangement or uh, what we call the, the global, but but also like a, a, a dumbbell that we have, uh, you know, a bridge between the US and China and make these two heavy ends that become much more robust in the operation capabilities, just getting stronger because of this. So you are optimistic or you are cautiously optimistic and uh, what's uh, some uh, hope that you will be able to see in down the near future that uh, makes uh, things easier? Yeah. I, I know that a lot of uh, cross-border deals and have been slower in the past several months. Um, so it's, it's quite important for, for China, biotech to operate, right? Yeah, I, I again, I said, you know, I'm not too concerned about the the cross-border deals, whether it's uh, out licensing uh, of our assets or in licensing of others, I think this is going to continue. Um, you know, because uh, you know it's a demand there. You know, it's very natural demand, just like the supply chain. However, I think something get hampered is really the exchange of people, talents, and ideas by allowing you know people physically meet each other as Brian, you personally probably also experienced. So this actually had been greatly scaled back um, because of the travel ban. Um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, announced that it will open up April 21st, tomorrow actually, uh, uh, today your time, uh, that uh, eventually Hong Kong can serve as an example how mainland China can open up for travel as well. Perfect. Let me just uh, go to another uh, topic. Um, um, you, uh, many say China's uh, new drug development started uh, really take off uh, because of the regulatory reform. Uh, lots of um, uh, harmonization and accelerated approvals and uh, fast track uh, priority reviews and IND uh, for 60 day, uh, you know, all this really uh, gave this sector, uh, you know, a uh, uh, booster to 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 take off. Um, so as we are seeing right now with the pandemic, with all this uh, other things ongoing, how do you see this uh, regulatory reform in particularly the harmonization with ICH? For Chinese uh, regulators, how do you see this going forward? Do you see it's been changing or it's been going the same, or do you see any maybe something you know working for any particular sector you are in? Well, we we have certainly a very recent you know examples the the. Innovant uh, Eli Lilly, uh, you know the FDA decision or FDA 
you know, expert panel's decision about their PD-1, and also the uh, uh, mRNA vaccine that from uh, uh, Fuxing and uh, BioNTech had now been approved. You know, all this, certainly those are the recent challenges in terms of um, the uh, U.S. and Chinese regulatory authorities may have uh, their own professional opinion on what should be done, what should not be done. But overall, I would say that, uh, you know, China biotech industry, including uh, Cambridge ourselves, uh, a big beneficiary of the, uh, the regulatory reform that occurred over the last five years by the AMPA, um, that, and then the joining of the ICH by Chinese uh, AMPA as well. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, from uh, the rare disease viewpoint, um, you know, because 80% of the disease are caused by genetic mutations. And that actually crossed all races or ethnic groups and across the continents. So if Cambridge holds a key to a disease, and most likely that key either is developed in China or in the US, can solve the problems for patients worldwide. And why should we not use the key you know, to really unlock both the health and also the commercial potential, you know, of, of those markets. Uh, and that actually really forced us, forced any company like Cambridge, who has the aspiration to become global, to seek the harmony between the US and the Chinese and the European and the other regulatory frameworks uh, and a standard. Um, certainly, it's always helpful you know, when you develop a drug to hold a higher standard than vice versa. Um, we we definitely, you know, practicing the talk uh, as we speak. Um, I just uh, want to uh, quickly uh, follow up. Um, you mentioned that, uh, I noticed that there's some uh, emphasis on Particularly in the 2021, there was uh, very much priority on rare disease uh, uh, and pediatric drug development. Um, so far this year, I have not seen any regulatory, you know, beneficial policy incentives or in this uh, regard. Um, so that's uh, many people wondering if that means uh, because of uh, uh, last year, there's a huge uh, price cutting. Uh, you may be aware a while that there is a kanjia. So that's because of really make people nervous about the real disease development. Yeah. How, how, how do you see this, um, you know, real disease space get a really didn't get any incentives or reimbursement or the 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 rewards for R&D uh, high cost associated with uh, the, the, the new drug development in this space. Uh, what, what are your takeaway or views on how real disease developers like Cambridge, you, you guys, will be able to sustain uh, with this uh, price cutting uh, strategy in China? Yes, actually, you, you you have a very important keyword you use, price cut. Um, is is you know for the Chinese National Health Insurance Bureau, the, you know their job has been over the decades 
is to cut price, whether it is an innovative drug or it's a generic drug. Um, I think that uh, terms in terms of for rare disease maybe is a little bit outdated um, because really China to date until Cambridge effort become fruition, there's not a single rare disease treatment that launched in the China market is developed by a Chinese company, by a local company. All the products we're talking about for rare disease are import products. So therefore, China naturally react to the price that coming from overseas as a very high price compared to China's market practice. So reducing that price to allow patients to have access is actually pretty natural instinct you know, to any parties, even to the patients and physicians. But, but however, you know, as we all know that it will have Cambridge's mission, not just serving as an industry leader, but also as a key pillar or architect of the future rare disease ecosystem, that we're hoping that in that ecosystem, that more investment will come in. And then because of the policies, the right policies in place, you know, more uh, R&D um, success will happen and more products developed by the Chinese local companies can actually you know, benefit the Chinese patients and then global patients as well. So therefore, the, there will be healthy return of those investments. So if we only talk about price cut of the Western drugs, but not to establish mechanism to say that what would be the reasonable price for locally developed and manufactured innovative rare disease drugs to be uh, launched into the Chinese market and launched beyond the Chinese market, this ecosystem will be very hard you know, to get started or get built. So therefore, you know, Cambridge mission is ready to uh, allow us to be you know, on the front center of the poster child, you know, to use each one of our product that to be developed, to be approved and to be marketed in the market uh, as the testament, as the examples on how China should price its own rare disease market. Um, I think that that's the topic uh, now in the center of the discussions rather than you know, what should be the right presentation of the cut. Uh, I personally have been involved in a series of these kind of meetings, closer meetings, which I cannot disclose to you with whom, but certainly you know, this is the main thesis of what should be the appropriate price level uh, for China rare disease market? Um, I'm fascinated by you saying that is a test, uh, really to test how China is going to develop its own uh, rare disease market, drug market. Um, can you just be more specific about, uh, is this mean that uh, Cambridge is willing to to cut prices to make sure that uh, is uh, to treat the the price for the volume gains or how do you see this market? I mean, everyone say China is huge. There's a huge population patients, but uh, again, when you dive into it, you will find many challenges out there in terms of commercial. How things? Because I'm going to ask you about the the product you are marketing, but I just want to have some general ideas. What do you see this market right now? What where it stands as of well, today? 
to uh, you know, in in our uh, perspectives, we we uh, we actually described the market in a very extended uh, way. Uh, you know, we uh, cited the re references, uh, um, you know, from a very credible third parties estimate China's market in really its market potential versus where we are is only one percent in terms of sales of the global size market size in China today. But China by the end of this decade, you know. The market size has grown to seven percent. You know, seven hundred times of today, uh, seven hundred percent of the of, of today, um, and um, that actually would come from uh, more, you know, disease were from uh, move from zero to one means that have no treatment to have a targeted treatment, and um, I, I think the rare disease phase is uh, pretty broad. Uh, Brian, uh, we're talking about, you know, in a smallest population, like let's say, you know, uh, Gaucher disease that has probably just in a matter of a few thousand patients total in China. Um, but hemophilia, on the other hand, also qualified as, as a rare disease. Hemophilia A has at least 100, 120,000 patients. So, so it's a pretty broad span. In terms of number of patients, so therefore I don't see a cookie cutter approach will work in terms of you know you can only use one price for all these different disease, and and also for the very smallest amount of patients, you know no matter how low the price is, you're not going to trade price for volume. The volume will stay the same. It's still a tiny volume. I think it comes back to to my challenge um, or questions is what should be the right price based on let's say number of patients or based on the effectiveness of the treatment, you know, based on competition or lack of it, you know, you know, based on the social economic status of the province, et cetera, et cetera. So those are actually a very good questions that the government now is asking themselves that are very exemplified by the challenge that the Premier Lee gave to the entire government in March, how we actually can really enforce the effort strengthen the effort to have more drugs to a rare disease supplied in the market. And I would say that until this is front and center formally addressed, we would not actually get a real progress. That's why I'm very excited um, this last March um, that this issue has been brought up on the table on the national level. Great. Um... Uh, as you are also the the, the general secretary uh, of the China Real Disease Alliance, uh, spearheaded by um, Beijing uh, Peking Union Hospital President uh, Zhang Shuyang Professor Zhang, um, what are efforts you as a leader uh, as a, uh, as the alliance and the others uh, to do? Uh, to negotiate or to pursue it, or even to lobby the government to make the rare disease development in China more sustainable, more, as you said, get healthy returns. And in the meantime, also get, a, you know, the patients also get access to, to your new drugs. Well, uh, I have the honor to uh, serve uh, as Deputy Director General of, of CARD, uh, together with uh, Professor Zhang, uh, have a lot of interaction with uh, Peking Union Hospitals and, and other uh, uh, key um, 
I would say the uh, uh, elements of the alliance, such as FERDA, um, such as the um, uh, Ministry of Health. Um, I, I think you know everybody shares the goal, uh, shares the uh, um, the uh, um, in Chinese it's chuxin, right? Uh, is the motivation, the original motivation that Chinese patients they desperately need us to help them. You know, as I said to uh, you know to my colleagues that under lockdown in Shanghai, just over in a matter of days, you have no access to a normal life. And you have no access to good health care, you have no access to you know schools, to uh, social interactions, to you know all the other things you want to do. And then you become very depressed. Can you imagine that a person that would have the same situation from day one at her or his birth is completely hopeless and for life? So because of that, you know, all the parties that I have been collaborating with um, on the China Alliance Rare Disease, we share the same goal that we want to completely change the situation for better for the Chinese rare disease patients. And we also believe there will be a lot more dividends paid should we really truly allow them their health issues to be taken care of, including uh, the development of the biotech industry, including the further perfection of the healthcare delivery system, including um, the, the social uh, uh, societal development in terms of uh, you know the equal opportunities um, you know for uh, and the care for the, those who are more vulnerable. Um, so you know those are the things that truly that we think um, we are well make the snowball growing bigger and bigger. Uh, as more and more uh, force from the society will join us. Okay, uh, that's a very uh, good point. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the motivation, Chuxing. And also, you know, in China, we have another word called Qinghuai. So, so, uh, so it may need some uh, both, uh, a, a bit of both to, to do the real disease development in China. Um, I, I just uh, quickly want to talk about your uh, uh, the, the real disease market uh, already in China uh, for hunters syndrome, uh, hunteress. Uh, this is the lesson from GC Farmer um, from South Korea, and it was approved in, I believe it's uh, later September 2020. Um, and um, it's a price uh, in South Korea, listed price uh, is already uh, among the lowest uh, worldwide, uh, because uh, South Korea ha also has a very uh, strict uh, rules in terms of uh, drug pricing. Um, do you see you want to put this drug on the national reimbursement price uh, drug price list uh, for 2022? And uh, do you see there's more space for you to cut the price in China? And also, what do you see the the because it's only reimbursed locally in maybe Zhejiang or Jiangsu province. So, what what's your plan? Well, certainly uh, I have to be careful in terms of giving uh, information that we have not disclosed publicly. Um, 
Um, certainly, uh, Huntress is a key product. It's our first launched a rare disease products in mainland China, uh, and then also addressing a very uh, difficult, um, severe uh, med medical need, uh, Hunter syndrome, um, happened to be the most prevalent form of MPS to uh, MPS uh, in in amongst Asian East Asians and Chinese. Roughly 50% of all MPS are MPS two for Chinese patients, um, and. It also, uh, soon after the approval by AMPA, September 2020, uh, in May of 2021, Huntress have been included to the national treatment consensus by the Chinese Pediatric Society. Uh, most patients actually are diagnosed and started to show symptoms at a very young age, you know, boys, young boys. Um, and then there's no other treatment other than Huntress. It's the only and the first and only approved appointed treatment, uh, target treatment uh, for this disease. Without treatment, those boys can live roughly to about high teens to early 20s and they have to perish. Uh, with the treatment, um, these boys actually can live a close to normal, uh, you know, lifespan uh, well into their, you know, 40s and 50s that has already been demonstrated uh, by similar uh, patients worldwide. Um, so I don't think, I cannot think of any reason that for such a pooled product, for such precious um, med medical need that are addressed in China clinically already, regulatory already, that we would deny the patient the access because we cannot effectively find a solution on market access. Um, as you mentioned, that the provincials already introduced their province provincial-based solutions, you know, spearheaded by those coastal provinces. Um, however, uh, you know, from end of 2021, uh, the National Health Interest Bureau um, implemented a temporary halt of those province effort, so that actually they would be given some time to roll out their respective national. Uh, policies. Uh, we are hoping, we're truly hoping, you know, that would actually allow a treatment like camp like Huntress, you know, to uh, fulfill its promise uh, in the China um, Hunter syndrome market and, and patients and their families. Um, so this year definitely is going to be a critical year for us, you know, to make all out effort, um, you know, to uh, um, do our best to give us the maximum chance uh, to give a shot to allow hunters, you know, to um, be considered for the national uh, access system. I, I won't say that uh, NRDR necessarily to be the only vehicle, because uh, I don't know whether uh, the national government will roll out something that actually parallel with NRDR for rare disease uh, treatment. But I have confidence that if something like this happens, Hunters should be on top of the shortlist for considerations. Um, I I guess uh, uh, as with far as we know, uh, every drug got into uh, on this list was cut uh, by average fifty by or even more percent. Um, so, would you are you willing to you know treat the price 
for this uh, inclusion into the national list without uh, knowing the sites and the mark the the, the procurement uh, sites. Well, we we have already uh, working on identifying patients. Um, so we have uh, in 2021 have already diagnosed around 200 new patients. Um, on top of another 200 patients that have been accumulated, accumulated over the past decade. Um, so we're talking about uh, for this number of patients, we have already um, a double digit number of patients on countries. Um, so, you know, with appropriate uh, support, financial support like commercial insurance that we already see the ball getting rolling. Um, but in terms of what would it take um, for Huntress to be nationally paid for? Um, what can Cambridge do to allow that happen sooner? Certainly, uh, we have all cards on the table, including be flexible on the pricing. But however, you know, we are in this for a business. We have to be sustainable ourselves in order to continue to invest in R&D in additional capabilities to bring out new treatment to patients. Um, and then what had demonstrated in the, uh, uh, you know, oncology area, in particular PD-1 area actually was uh, the opposite example of, you know, excessive price cut or uh, uh, over invested in one area, re redundancy in one area actually would cause harm than good, um, that cause low price that would benefit nobody. Um, and but rare disease, I, I would say that probably uh, would not be the case. As I already said, um, there's no much competition. Uh, there's no like you know vicious kind of cycle in terms of you get a lower price and another party even get an even more low ball, lower ball. However, you know we, I think we would just need uh, more and more education and the information sharing with uh, the authorities, with particular uh, you know the the uh, people who are making the decision in terms of uh, whether uh, we should continue what practice of last December uh, that have a drastic uh, reduction of drug price of two rare disease products. Um, you know, I would not comment on those particular cases, but I think um, Huntress certainly have his own merit uh, is an enzyme replacement and is addressing very young children. Um, and then without and with the treatment, their life will be in heaven and earth. So therefore, I think we have a very good case to present, um, you know, to the national authorities this year. Do you see, James, uh, commercial insurance uh, as a viable option in China for you hunters, for example, for this patients, hunter syndrome patients? Yeah, well, we we're currently, uh, as I said, our commercial launch is largely based on what we call non-reimbursed market, um, and then commercial insurance was the main vehicle for us to allow patients to start a treatment. Commercial patient, commercial insurance certainly will be the future. However, now, uh, as as you know, that many of those commercial insurance, uh, they also need to seek, uh, you know, a good operational uh, cycle, right? You know. Uh, means that you know they are in this for profit. So if uh, if they cannot 
sustain as a profitable operations. Um, eventually, they're going to cease operations, just like the drug industry as well. So eventually, it's really not who is doing what. It's going is more like the the government needs to set up certain policy framework, you know, to allow us to have a more uh, ability to predict, to calculate, you know, what should be our operation, uh, operational impact, what should be the return on investment, so that actually we would know that any decision we make uh, will allow us to continue to grow, or is a decision actually eventually will lead us to a unforeseeable future. So you are actually un, uh, cautiously optimistic about uh, the going forward, instead of being discouraged by this uh, 90, more than 95% price cut. Yeah, for uh, this, absolutely. Uh, I think that that actually, uh, you know, even the the Beijing authorities were surprised in terms of the feedback from all stakeholders were not overwhelmingly positive about the last year's ultra low price of those two particular cases. Um, they, they actually went at length to go to approach stakeholders like us to ask why you know, people are not seeing those as necessary a success as a whole you know, constituencies. Uh, and then they are now rethinking what would be the balanced approach rather than the extreme approach. So you do think this uh, education and uh, information sharing with uh, stakeholders, particularly the government stakeholders, are going to to work? And uh, even it takes a uh, more time or longer than you than someone has uh, hoped. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm always a you know optimist, but you can see that uh, I have been with the China real estate industry from the beginning for 20 years. If you compare where we are today versus 20 years when I started, uh, it's just a totally different world and mentality. And also many patients as the uh, you know technology, in particular the diagnostic tools, become much more affordable. Genetic sequencing. A lot of people realizing actually a rare, rare disease and not that far from them. They could happen to themselves. It could happen to their offsprings, their families and friends. Um, I, I cannot think of anybody who actually do not know somebody who actually have been impacted by a, a form of rare disease, whether it's ALS, you know, or uh, as I said, you know, hemophilia um, and other disease. I, I think just uh, uh, people realize that if we don't, you know, make something happen now, even when we personally would need help or family would need help, then we'll have no help to go for. I'm very encouraged by the switch of mentality you know, from 20 years ago. You know, this has nothing to do with us, just those a few people's issues. Then it's actually everyone has a stake in this. How about uh, investors? Are they on board with you? Are they not being encouraged by the 95% uh, the Ding Huang Kanjia? It's, it's a very serious issue, right? Well, and I, I think investments are is a leisuring, is is non-emotional. It has to be very rational, right? You know, you have to give them a rational reason to invest. Otherwise, why should they invest, right? Their investment is for profit. But however, I would say that this is where uh, set separate uh, what we call the generalist and the, the specialty investors. The specialty investors 
they have lived through this just like I did for the past 20, even 30, 40 years to witness experience how the global rare disease market evolved and matured. You know, 30 years ago, everywhere is the same as China, maybe even worse. And now they become very productive, successful markets. And those investors actually have right through those ups and downs, and they have gained a lot financially and also uh, intellectually. So therefore, uh, I'm, you know, basically blessed, you know, with those, you know, steadfast support from, you know, our backers. However, it's always, you know, our job, my job, or my CFO's job to educate potential investors who are still on the fence in terms of doubting the uh, viability of the future of China real estate market. But at least we, we can convince them that once we have an asset that that truly developed as a global asset, like our CAN 106, that uh, certainly will have a, a major uh, opportunity raveling uh, AstraZeneca's revoluzumab and uh, 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 um When that happens, um, as that happening, that um, we actually can demonstrate that even the China market would take time to gradually open, we actually can capture the ex-China global market opportunity in a much faster uh, manner because those markets are very well established. We just need to establish the data, the body yeah. of evidence or product works. Yeah, uh, I just uh, going to dive into the last set, uh, uh, talking about uh, your the specific R&D pipeline. Uh, you mentioned uh, CNA uh, 106, um, which is going to be used in Baolao, Lecheng, uh, and also uh, for 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 you, um, uh, basically the in-licensed uh, a uh, uh, GS uh, syndrome uh, drug, uh, rare liver disease drug, uh, CAN 108. Yeah, 108. Um, what? Yeah. Yes, one. What do you see this in licensing model? It's um, it's being uh, received some uh, not quite positive uh, uh, feedbacks uh, from last year. We we talk about, uh, for example, Zylife or something. It, it's not really. People think like, oh, in a sudden they just want uh, homegrown innovations. What do you see this in licensing model? Like what you are using right now going forward. I think it's just like the you know the uh, the swing of the pendulum on the uh, the clock you know is from one side to the other you know a few years ago you know every company has to do an in licensing with a well regarded the global company to you know, prove that you know they are kind of an equal partner and now that the rest have to establish themselves as a what they call the you know Bentu Chuangxin uh, a fully integrated local uh, you know R and D company you know both have some merits. I won't say that, you know, things will just start, you know, stayed this way uh, next two years. Uh, there's always a balance between um, in license, partnering, and indigenously develop your own capabilities and products. Um, and then nobody actually calculate the failure rate, right, or success rate in terms of how, how what's the chance of success once a product enters into phase one. Is actually less than 10%, maybe much, much less than that. And then the investment on that uh, as a total uh, is actually 80% uh, of our of our life science investment actually are made into the oncology area. And most of the so-called 
locally innovative companies actually are also build their R&D in oncology. And it's a very high risky area as a, as a whole. I bet a return on investment for oncology probably would be smaller than in other sectors. So um, my, my um, job is to create uh, you know, the, the highest return for shareholders um, and then to address the mathematical needs, whether it's a product that we are brought in from a, a licensed model in a, in a rare disease, actually, we have an advantage of uh, shorten the runway and then minimize the, the investment because the you know clinical trial waiver, the priority review, those kind of uh, regulatory policies really allow us to make that happen. Um, and also, uh, even for our you know development programs uh, such as K106, that you know we actually would run a much smaller size of trial even a single arm study that allows us to get NDA uh, stage, not just in China, but also with the US FDA, as you can see that the recent Sucaplan, so uh, the UCB and the C5 product actually got the uh, FDA's not uh, with only a single arm study. So all this actually, you know, give us a strong hint that we're actually on the right track to, uh, you know, in a very kind of a cost effective way and then much shorter duration to uh, build you know, our commercial and then late stage development portfolio. So, um, so last, lastly, um, I noticed uh, there are more competitors of uh, Cambridge uh, coming online since uh, 2021, um, pretty much using the same in licensing models. Um, what do would you say to them? I mean, are they uh, really helping the ecosystem, or what? What do you think? Uh, this space because it's already being competitive and challenging, yeah, and I, now you have new. Uh, I, I cannot really speak for other CEOs, um, but you know, if you pay attention to uh, our recent transactions, we actually have shifted from acquiring products only to actually. Uh, a mix of acquiring products and acquiring technologies and IPs. Um, the latter become more evident uh, or deal with Logic Bio, uh, UMass, University of Washington, and Descriptor. Um, you know, by having more tools in our toolbox, we actually uh, enabled to build our integrated, you know, gene therapy platform uh, that we sooner rather than later will be able to independently uh, develop. Uh, or and push or in-house um, in, indigently uh, developed products uh, that entitled the global IP into the clinical stage. Um, you know, I hope that uh, when that happens, we can have a sequel of, of this discussion. Great. Uh, I I would love to continue our discussion. I know time is late for you, and and uh, uh, but uh, I I still just want to. Just want to make the last uh, uh, comment, a question, uh, because uh, really, uh, if you noticed, uh, since 2021, late 2020, there's more, even in gene therapy space, I have seen the, at least uh, many, even more than 10 companies upcoming in China. Uh, if you talk about ophthalmology, the real eye disease, or the hemophilia disease, or even some other parts, their gene therapy companies 
in Shanghai, in Wuhan, and in other parts of China. Yeah. And also real disease in licensing companies are doing, uh, uh, a lot of them are also doing the similar thing as Cambridge has uh, been successfully done. So, so you think it's a part of ecosystem building or you think it's uh, really help the system or you think it's going to bring more challenges down the road to, 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 to this sector? I would say that for origin therapy companies, the biggest challenge have two. One is IP, um, because having a global IP portfolio for gene therapy companies is a big deal. I to, to date, I haven't seen any company that actually openly declared that their clinical or preclinical stage program is targeting a global market rather than the China market. Secondly, is actually you know the uh, the manufacturing know-how. Um, as you know, that uh, many of the current, uh, you know, clinical stage programs worldwide, less along in China, are what we call the, the first generation of AAB gene therapies. What Cambridge is actually developing, uh, that sooner are going to push into the clinical candidacy stage, what we call the next generation of gene therapy. So we actually, our platform, uh, have the ability to overcome the challenges and then this technical shortcomings or weaknesses of the existing platforms that to my observation that actually most the gene therapy companies that you uh, mentioned are based in China are still staying with the first generation technology platforms. And secondly, nevertheless, I said, you know, this is actually welcoming news uh, because we're talking about more companies are thinking ahead, you know, to transform the market from a chronic treatment market to a curative treatment market. Right, you know, this would be whether successful or not. But if you already start thinking forward, eventually the, the, the days for those arrive will come sooner rather than later. I would say that China perhaps has the opportunity, just like how we developed the, you know, the uh, mobile industry, right? You know, before the landline was prevalent, all of a sudden everybody's using 3G, 4G, and 5Gs now. Uh, without a you know a tran transition of the landline, like in most developed countries, um, I would say that in China, perhaps gene therapy would offer a similar opportunity, like the uh, the you know the mobile industry. However, the challenge is, you know, what should be the right pricing to allow gene therapy, you know, to be a sustainable business on its own? Because if they are truly effective, the one patient you treat. The one fewer the patient in the market, right? You become mm -hmm. a victim of your own success. That already been established yeah. by uh, other, uh, yeah. you know, treatments worldwide. Um, if you don't really recognize the chronic treatment as a value creation opportunity, is a annual treatment multiplied by, you know, the number of years of the patient lifespan is the total spending on those drugs, and then you are hoping that people are willing to invest heavily in a one-shot treatment that you will assign a nominal value, I would not think anything would happen if if this, you know, prerequisite is not effectively addressed. But how about the uh, commercial manufacturing? It's really very competitive as far as we have seen in the U.S., what's going on in the U.S., because uh, those needs a lot of a big, huge investment for vector well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. I would say it's, it's a still very fragmented because the gene therapy, uh, 
is all about the the efficiency. So far, as I said, the first generation of gene therapy, the biggest uh, disadvantage is the low efficiency. You know, you have to inject tens of millions of copies of the capsids with the transgene into the human body, and then hopefully that a few of them will make to the targeted cell. Um, and then that caused a lot of issues in terms of the high cost, in terms of the high toxicity and the adverse event. So if you actually can reduce, let's say you reduce, you increase the efficiency by tenfold, you actually reduce the cost of good by tenfold as well. You also reduce the dosage by tenfold. You know, everything actually would become a multiplier in terms of the benefits. You know, that's exactly what we have been working on. Um, and then I think once we get there, you know, the, the issues that now very high in people's mind in terms of high cost manufacturing, toxicity, and uh, and then the uh, uh, the low uh, effect efficacy, relative low efficacy, would be uh, much more improved. This is definitely what we are working on. Okay, last uh, question, James. I promise uh, you will be let go. Uh, Ten years for Cambridge uh, this year uh, since you started 2012. Uh, decade later. Uh, before decade one, uh, first when you started, and then 10 years now, starting where you were and starting where you are, what are something you would share with anyone uh, for real disease, disease uh, developer uh, in China or in global? Uh, what would you, something take away or something, you know, tips you can share? Anything? Well, really become uh, you know building a company is it's not a sprint it's a marathon um you know 10 years I, I just felt that uh, easily i can think of another 10 years that we truly become a um you know grown up as a company that evident by you know we have generated major revenues and then probably um already profitable um but in terms of in the universe of uh you know biotech drug development in rare disease in particular uh, my study shown that the shortest amount of time between the establishment of company to the first product approved is 10 years, the longest 27 years. And those are the companies that actually eventually made it to become a global powerhouse. You know, one I mentioned was Genzyme, the first, and the second actually was Vertex. Um, I, I would say that, you know, for rare disease, we're developing solutions, life time solutions for a patient. Many of them actually generations of solutions um, you know, for Gaucher disease, actually the inventor of uh, the drug, actually, well, his grandchildren also have the disease and then become instantaneously uh, treated after birth once diagnosed. So we're, we're basically, you know, doing things that can potentially impact generations to come. So therefore, we have to be more patient, more resilient to allow uh, our journey to continue. I'm hoping more uh, of uh, the Chinese uh, companies, entrepreneurs, and investors will join us uh, for this very meaningful house. Well said. Thank you so much, James. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. Um, and good luck. And uh, we hope we will hear more from you down the road. Good news. 
Thank you again, Brian, for you know your kind invitation and and your time. And you know, definitely look forward to uh, continuing to work with you, and, and also look forward to sharing uh, on the uh, ongoing basis uh, our uh, learnings um, from building Cambridge. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that concludes our first episode of CEO Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Goodbye.